Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Katie Coldiron and I'm based at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And I have the great pleasure today to be interviewing Rachel Nolan, author of Until I Find You, Disappeared Children and Coercive Adoptions in Guatemala, uh, released this year from Harvard University Press. Rachel Nolan is a professor at Boston University. Thank you so much for being here today with us, Rachel. As a longtime listener, I thank you for inviting me on the show. Yes, we're, we're really happy to have you here. So what I like to start out with the authors that um, I interview on the show is to ask them a little bit about how this project really came to be. Well, I think most people's stories are somewhat um, complex and how they came to a given topic was not a straight path and my life is no different. Um, I'd actually worked as a journalist before I started doing my PhD and I'd been doing freelance uh, work in Mexico and I lived in Mexico City. So when I applied to graduate school, I thought, oh, naturally I'll choose a topic about um, Southern Mexico, perhaps about Chiapas. I proposed something very different from what I ended up doing. Um, And perhaps unlike some of the people who pursue PhDs in Latin American history, I did not start this as an undergraduate. So there was a lot of catching up that I had to do when I started my PhD program. And I quickly realized that several of the ideas that I'd had for dissertation topics that I thought were absolutely brilliant had been written about at great length by wonderful scholars, including Virginia Garrett Burnett and others. And I thought, oh, um, I'd better find something different to write about. So reading around uh, for my comps, I read Kirsten Weld's wonderful book, Paper Cadavers. And there is a line in that book, which is about the discovery of the National Police Archives in Guatemala City. And there is a line in that book about archivists scanning um, materials that related to war crimes, including adoption files, because some adoptions in wartime Guatemala had been forcible disappearances of children. And I read that and I underlined it. I still have my copy of Kirsten's book. And I said, in the margins, has anyone written about these adoption cases? And the answer was no. And I turned out to be that person. So that is that is truly where this came from. Thank you so much. And yeah, that obviously, you know, the fact that this project has its origins in the in such a fantastic book by such a great historian really um, speaks a lot to it. And as I told you, as we were talking beforehand, I see a lot of that influence talking about your process um, of doing research in this book. So thank you for that. So uh, moving on, your research, as I just mentioned, your research process really shines through in this text. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your research in Guatemala, as well as the willingness or not of your interviewees to talk about such a sensitive subject. Sure. Thanks for this great question. I think that many of our listeners will be aware that doing archival research in Guatemala is maybe not as simple as doing it in a country that has 
very well organized national archives, you know, easy access to files, et cetera. Many of us work in complex environments. It's not just in Central America. Um, so Guatemala is quite complex because the National Archives stopped collecting papers during the Civil War. There's a wonderful private research institute called CIRMA that has a lot of documentation in Antigua, but the adoption files were held in neither of these two places. So early on in the project, I thought, I'm not going to write about adoptions if I only have access to secondary sources because there's a lot of information, panic, misinformation about adoption stories in the Guatemalan press, never mind the international press. So I thought this is not going to be really worthwhile unless I can get my hands on adoption files as a kind of primary source. Um, I knew that they existed in part because of Kirsten's wonderful book and in part because some archivists that I met with in Guatemala made that clear to me. Um, they had been briefly held at an archive called Archivo de la Paz, the Archives of Peace, that was disbanded, however, before I got myself to Guatemala for the first time in 2014. So I was sort of chasing these archives all around Guatemala City and I finally found them. A wonderful archivist um, at the National Archive pointed me back toward the ministry that had produced the paperwork to begin with, saying, look at the Ministry of Social Welfare. They don't officially have an archive, but they may have some old papers, you know, really insist at the gate, um, see if you can get access to the adoption files that way. And she was absolutely right. Um, I insisted, the guard thought, you know, what is this very lost looking North American doing here? Um, and eventually under what is effectively the equivalent of Guatemala's uh, Freedom of Information Act, I was able to get access to all of those adoption files. So that's one set of sources for the book. I, and I thought, you know, that's enough to write a book about the disappearances, the forcible disappearances of children through state orphanages during the war. That's a book. And then I realized, you know, that is actually a quite small subset of all of the other adoptions that were processed in Guatemala. Um, from the time that adoptions began in 1968 to the time that they were uh, closed, that they became no longer available internationally in 2008. And the other side were these privatized adoptions, um, which were overseen by lawyers, which I know we'll talk about a little bit more. But I thought, you know, I'd really like to get access to some of that paperwork too. But that was a question of going around to different lawyers and sort of begging them to be able to see their paperwork. Um, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but this kind of drew on my journalistic background where I, you know, approach people for interviews, for oral histories. And then I would say, you know, am I able to look at some of your paperwork? And one of the lawyers agreed and gave me access to his entire private adoption file. So I was able to kind of tell both stories because of the 40,000 total adoptions. That's an estimate. Um, only a kind of small fraction, 1,000 of the cases were held in the state files, and the rest of them were private adoptions from the from uh, from what I can tell. So that's the that's the kind of sourcing story. Thank you so much for that. And I can assure readers they will get more of your your fabulous research process if they go read the book. So as you mentioned, um, adoptions have a long history in Guatemala and Latin America more broadly. And what set it Guatemala apart in particular, as you mentioned, was the phenomenon of privatized adoption legalized in 1977. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about what adoption looked like in Guatemala before the 1977 law and what it looked like after. Sure. And I was very surprised to learn all of this. I'll be completely honest. Um, I didn't in go to graduate school intending to become a specialist in international adoption, but life takes funny turns. Um, the early adoptions from Guatemala look a lot like the early adoptions from elsewhere in the global south throughout the 19th century. Missionaries, often Protestant missionaries, would informally adopt 
children and bring them back to the United States or care for them in country. So there was this kind of earlier history of um, child theft in some cases, child, you know, adoption in other cases by outsiders. So this is not a new thing in the Cold War. But starting in the Cold War, the United States, along with uh, various European countries and Canada, became much more enthusiastic consumers, if I can use that word, of international adoptees. And, you know, a large number of children were adopted from uh, South Korea to the United States, followed by China, followed by Russia, you know, and so a lot of different countries were involved in these international adoption circuits. And Guatemala was not a big one, actually. For a long time, Guatemala was a sort of minor player in this. Um, they, I found in the records of the state orphanage that they only opened a formal international adoption program in the 1960s in Guatemala. So that was quite late. Um, a small number of adoptions went through official channels, you know, the usual kinds of programs where you have a state orphanage, a judge overseeing the process, very usual stuff from around the world. And that lasted from the 60s until 1977. As you mentioned, there was, an, there was a massive earthquake in Guatemala in the 1970s that brought a flood of foreign missionaries into the country. Um, lawyers helped push the Guatemalan Congress to pass a law privatizing international adoptions in 1977. Um, so it sort of opened up a second track. So the state orphanage adoptions were always there. That's throughout the, the history, right? Um, but starting in 1977, there was this other route that uh, parents could take if they were interested in adopting, adopting a Guatemalan child. And this other route meant that a foreign adoption agency would get in touch directly with a private adoption lawyer. That lawyer would find the adoptable child, often not from an orphanage, and we can talk about the process of how the lawyer found the child. Um, and then the lawyer would oversee the entire process themselves. Yes, the paperwork would go to uh, the kind of equivalent of the attorney general's office, but by by agreement, that was something of a rubber stamp. So there was not a lot of oversight in this process. Um, and, and so in 1977, this kind of second track opened up, privatized adoption became available. And this was very popular with families in the US in particular because it was fast. It was quite expensive, but it was a lot faster than some of the red tape surrounding adoptions in the state orphanages. So for understandable reasons, more people started to adopt through the private system than through the public system. And both were shut down in 2008. So uh, international adoption no longer exists in Guatemala. We can talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. I mean, truly, it is a very mixed uh, outcome. But I went to the current Consejo Nacional de Adopciones, the kind of adoption headquarters to interview someone there. And they looked at me because I'm white, you know, I'm a white woman of a certain age. And they said, oh, ma'am, you can't adopt anymore. And I said, no, no, I'm here to interview someone, you know. So that has been illegal since 2008. Thank you so much for that. And um, obviously, we're going to talk more about this as uh, the interview goes on. But the idea of, you know, this faster process, but at the expense of what? And that seems to be, you know, adequate oversight. So thank you for that. Moving on, uh, differences in ethnicity and cultural identity, not only between Guatemalans and those from the global north coming to adopt, but also between Guatemalans themselves, plays a key role in this narrative. I was hoping you could elaborate a bit more about the relationship between adoption, both public and private, and Guatemala's large indigenous population. Sure. So for those who don't have the opportunity to spend a lot of time in Guatemala, which is a wonderful country full of wonderful people. So if you have the opportunity, please go. Um, you know, Guatemala is divided between 
what are, what is called the indigenous population there and what is called the Ladino population. These are not words that are used throughout the rest of Latin America. So I'll just explain briefly. Ladinos are people who are non-indigenous. So they may have some indigenous heritage. They often do, you know, most everyone in Guatemala does. They may be all the way from quite white to quite brown or indigenous looking, but they primarily speak Spanish. They probably live in a city. They have a non-indigenous identity. So what I'm trying to say here is, you know, for a North American audience, it's kind of confusing who's indigenous in Guatemala. For Guatemalans, it's very clear. If you speak one of 22 Mayan languages, you're indigenous. If you wear a traje, which is the colorful woven clothing, you're indigenous. Um, if you are discriminated against, you are indigenous. Um, there's a long history and tradition of quite virulent discrimination against indigenous people in Guatemala that indigenous activists would rightly tell you dates back to the conquest. Um, and more recently, a history of genocide of certain indigenous groups in Guatemala in the 1980s by uh, the army backed by the US. So we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in reference to the Cold War. Um, but what's important to know is that indigenous people make up roughly half of the population in Guatemala, and they are vastly overrepresented in the number of children who were put up for adoption, vastly overrepresented. So of all the children who were put up for adoption, I don't have concrete numbers because I could not consult 40,000 adoption files. I mean, as much as I would have loved to, they are not um, uh, available to researchers. So I only got a small sliver of the private adoption files, as I mentioned, through this one lawyer. Um, but it was obvious to me and to everyone I interviewed that the vast majority of kids being put up for adoption were either A, indigenous, B, uh, from impoverished families, or most likely belonging to both of those two groups. So I, I point this out always to say, it's not that indigenous families were the only ones affected by adoption dynamics in Guatemala, um, definitely not. But the out adoption of indigenous children um, has a very painful history. And by out adoption, I mean placement of indigenous children with non-indigenous families, whether domestically or abroad. This has an extremely painful history in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in many other different places around the world. So I want Wanted to be sure in my book to um, place Guatemala in that context so that people could understand that the dynamics of adoption were also part of the anti-Indigenous violence of the war. Thank you so much for that. And I'm glad you alluded to my next question, which um, kind of, I obviously in this narrative, and I think it shows, um, this part particularly shows your engagement with the work of like, you know, your mentor, Greg Grandin, for instance. Um, this is a story that you place within the realms of the Cold War, as well as the neocoloniality that exists in Guatemala and relationships between different social classes and ultimately the state. And I think this is a really pertinent question right now, considering recent events in Guatemala. I was hoping you could, could expand a bit more on this framework. Sure. So Greg Grandin is a unique scholar. We were discussing this before we got on the phone. He's a wonderful thesis advisor. Shout out to Greg. I don't know if you're listening. Hi, Greg. Um, you can remove that if you want. Listen, Greg Grandin is a wonderful scholar. Often people will tell me, oh, you must have gone to NYU because you wanted to work on Guatemala with Greg. No. In fact, I wanted to write about Mexico. And Greg, uh, once I found the adoption file, certainly encouraged me to pursue this project because he knows how um, resonant it is for Guatemalans as well, right? Like everyone in Guatemala knows these stories and we'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Um, but the question, oh, now I've gone totally off track. What was the question? I have the script here. <laughs> I distracted with my thoughts of, of Greg. Um, the question was about the Cold War context. No. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the really important context for Guatemala uh, in the 1970s, especially through the period that I'm talking about here through the 80s and through the 90s, is that Guatemala was experiencing a 36 year civil war in which 200,000 people died. So the vast majority of those people were civilians. The vast majority of victims of the violence during the Guatemalan civil war um, were victims of state terror. Right. So People in Guatemala even say we shouldn't really call this a civil war because that makes it sound symmetrical or that makes it sound like civilians weren't being massacred in these large um, uh, killings in villages, which is what ended up happening throughout the 1980s. So um, what's really important to know about the context in Guatemala is that there was the single bloodiest and most violent conflict of the Cold War era in which guerrilla groups backed by uh, Cuba and certainly inspired by um, Marxist-Leninist uh, philosophy were attempting to topple a uh, US-backed military dictatorship. Um, I mentioned the support from Cuba was more important at some times, less important than other times. What's important to know about Guatemala is unlike El Salvador, for example, the guerrilla were never even really that close to winning. So the the US sending this ton of money and coming down like a ton of bricks on the Guatemalan guerrilla had a lot more to do with um, Cold War paranoia than kind of actual facts on the ground. And the US is easy to blame and they, they uh, bear a lot of responsibility for the violence in Guatemala, especially in the 1980s, but elites within Guatemala were just as happy to um, feed into the kind of extreme Cold War paranoia of communism um, to settle old scores. They had their own variant of uh, anti-communist hysteria within Guatemala as well. So I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here, but the important thing to say is there's this kind of ongoing discussion for scholars, those of us who are specialized in Guatemalan history about what really caused the violence in the 1980s. Was it US pressure and the kind of broader framework of the global Cold War or was it local dynamics within Guatemala that were exacerbated by some of those outside pressures? And I think the answer, depending on what story you are trying to tell is a little bit different. Um, and in the case of adoptions, on the face of it, it sounds like, okay, but that's about US-Guatemalan relations. So that must be about the framework of the Cold War. And what I found in reading the adoption files was, was actually a lot of the things that made children adoptable within the Guatemalan context had less to do with that international context and more to do with a kind of national state or even local dynamic of extreme economic uh, inequality within Guatemala, extreme exploitation of women, of indigenous people in particular, um, extreme exploitation, including sexual exploitation of domestic servants. So I, you know, I'm not trying to make some bigger claim here about interpreting the Guatemalan civil war as a whole. Um, but I kind of land with the scholars who would emphasize the, the local dynamics and the national dynamics, because that's what I was seeing in the adoption files. Thank you so much for that. And for a Cold War nerd like myself, it's all, you know, thinking about these linkages to this, you know, kind of quotidian process, it seems like in this era is really interesting. So thank you for that. Um, so getting into the parents, the adoptive parents. As you show, the foreign parents who adopted from Guatemala varied, coming from different places, as well as possessing different levels of knowledge about potential irregularities in this process. Could you tell us a bit more about foreigners coming to Guatemala to adopt in the late 20th century and beyond, and perhaps some of the nuances within this group? 
Sure. Um, I want to be very clear from the outset that my intention here was never to critique adoptive parents. In fact, I have read many adoption files um, in which they are expressing altruism in its purest form. So um, that said, there's a lot of uh, asymmetry of access to information. Ad some adoptive parents just didn't have access to certain uh, information about how, where the children that they were trying to adopt were really coming from, about the, the kind of conditions of consent of the birth parents, if that consent really existed. Um, but just to be totally clear, I have read adoption files where people are talking about long-term infertility. I am, I've read adoption files where people are talking about being called by God. There are many evangelical Christians who adopted children. Um, so when I was writing this book, in showing some of the most difficult or worst circumstances for international adoption, my my intention was never to critique the adoptive parents, right? What I want to show is the broad variety of motivations that they had, is the broad kind of geographical span for adoptive parents. They could be wealthy people in Sweden. They could be farmers in Minnesota. It just was, it, it really spans. Um, so the kind of overarching theme that I found uh, was that adoptive parents felt very pressured in terms of time. Um, they often were looking for processes that were faster um, and they felt uh, very frustrated when there was what they perceived as bureaucratic red tape. And in some cases, there was bureaucratic red tape. And in other cases, there were reasonable controls. So there's this broad variety of experience of adoptive parents that I think is really important to highlight. That, that said, adoption experts would describe adoptive families as a triad, right? You have the adoption triad, you have the adoptive parents, you have the adoptees, and you have the birth parents, and that's the triad. Um, and I do not form part of the adoption triad. People sometimes ask me if that's why I'm interested in this, and that is not the case. Um, but, you know, frequently in adoption narratives, you get the perspective of the adoptive parents very strongly. And so what I was attempting to do in focusing not on the outcome of the adoptions, but on what makes children adoptable in Guatemala in the first place, was to focus on the other two parts of the triad, to focus on the experience of the birth mothers, if that was even available to me, and we can talk about how difficult that is to source, and to focus on the kind of life trajectory of the adoptees in their very early years and how they became adoptable. So the adoptive parents, I do mention because I think it's an important part of the process, but they were never intended to be the sort of focus of the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for, for sharing that. And, and I agree, obviously, you know, it's just um, they aren't the focus of the book, but, you know, it is it does add a layer of richness to the to the narrative that you have to kind of talk about, you know, who these people were to a certain degree. So thank you. Uh, one thing that really captivated me in this beautifully written book, um, I just have to say that, was the section on rumors and the power they held in Guatemala, particularly regarding the possibility that children were being harmed by foreigners. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about this phenomenon and why certain rumors held so much power in Guatemalan society at the time? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that lovely thing about my book. And second of all, I will say I was joined in my obsession with the history of rumors and gossip by two other scholars, Sarah Foss and Vanessa Frege, um, and who were also concerned about what do we do with gossip when we find it in the archives? What do we do with rumor that we know to be wrong, but that has precipitated very real historical events? And the three of us eventually collaborated on doing a special issue for the Journal of Social History on the history of gossip and falsification in the archive, because we were so interested in that topic. So I was not working through those questions alone. It was one of the things that when I was working on this book, 
as my dissertation most frustrated me because I didn't know how to deal with falsified paperwork or I didn't know how to analyze some of these rumors that had come up in Guatemala, especially in the 1990s. So let me just tell the listener what the rumors were. In the 1990, starting in the late 1980s and then heavily throughout the 1990s, there were widespread rumors in Guatemala that the children who were being um, taken out of the country supposedly for the purposes of adoption were not actually adopted. That instead those children were being killed and their organs were being extracted for organ trafficking rings. I would like to be very clear that I never found any evidence that that was the case. There are many reasons that it is impossible um, and children were truly being adopted. They were not being killed for organ trafficking. Very important to state the fact. So at first I thought, okay, I'm not gonna write about the organ trafficking rumors because they're false. Right. Um, but they spread so widely in Guatemala and they expressed all of these sort of fears about a very real and very unequal dynamic between Guatemala and U.S. families that I thought, OK, I really do need to analyze these. And some of those rumors did tragically end up in um, episodes of what's called lynchamiento, like lynching, although that has a different meaning in the Central American context, basically mob violence against foreigners who showed up in rural areas in Guatemala in the 1990s. And one woman was horrifically attacked, beaten into a coma. Um, several Japanese tourists were killed. These are not the only incidents. So people lost their lives to these rumors. So I thought it was really important to write about them. Um, while being really clear that rumors were just rumors. So as a historian, I thought, okay, can we use some of these rumors um, inspired by Louise White and other historians to get at some deeper truths while still being, um, you know, honest and uh, sensitive about the fact that these were just rumors, right? Like what did the rumors cause, even though we know that they were just rumors? And that was the kind of tricky line that I was trying to walk in that chapter, I was able to draw on this magnificent uh, thesis that was written by Daniel Rothenberg about some of the events in Tolos Santos that really helped me think through some of these issues. If you check the footnotes, I cite that thesis very heavily. So I want to shout out to him too. Thank you uh, so much for that. So obviously, when we're talking about children, um, children represent a lot um, in the concept of a nation, the the society in question's ability to provide for its most vulnerable citizens and ultimately the future. So in thinking about children in this way, one arrives to ideas of morality, which obviously play a large role in this book. How did private adoption riddled with irregularities serve as an affront to the Guatemalan nation and preconceived notions of morality? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've I've learned a lot from Laura Briggs. And I know you're a Cuba person, Anita Casabantes Bradford, and other people who've written about Operation Peter Pan and all, Pedro Pan and all of these, you know, it this is not the only country where this is happening, right? Chilean rumors about the communists are gonna come separate your kids and send them to Russia or turn them into ground meat, I think was a rumor in Cuba. This is not unique to Guatemala, right? So the the affront to nationalism when a country becomes a source for other countries adoptions is also not unique to Guatemala. This is a huge issue in South Korea. In the 1990s, South Korea was labeled the orphan exporting nation because of the very high volume of children who were out adopted from South Korea. It's the largest number in the history of any country in the world, 200,000 kids from South Korea adopted outside of South Korea. And there was a kind of nationalist backlash that made adoptions from South Korea a lot more difficult. There was a similar phenomenon in Guatemala. Um, there was not much reckoning with the history of forcible disappearances of children during the Civil War, as I discuss in the book. 
the country of Guatemala has had a very incomplete reckoning with the crimes that were committed in the war there, despite the heroic work of the Truth Commission, the two Truth Commissions that operated there, despite the heroic work of a lot of human rights prosecutors, there's a lot of amnesia and kind of denial still in Guatemala about what happened. But the, the backlash was instead against the privatized adoptions because the story that certain lawyers were making a lot of money out of uh, facilitating these adoptions began to spread widely in Guatemala. So to this day, when I showed up in Guatemala to start researching this, um, everyone responded to it, right? You'd meet someone random and say, and say, oh, I'm here in Guatemala researching this topic. And they would say, oh, I always heard that they were doing a business with the kids. Is that true? Or like, lucraban con las opciones, ¿verdad? Like they always asked, like it was something that was, that people really knew about. And in part it was because of this backlash in the nineties and early two thousands, where there was a sense that there was something wrong with the way that adoptions were happening that was wider than just among human rights advocates or kind of among even very educated people. It was a broader sense um, that there was something wrong there. And the tricky thing about that is that adoptions were very different. There are some horrific cases of adoption of forcible adoption, forcible disappearances of even kidnappings. But the vast majority of adoptions were actually much more gray or kind of more ambiguous. And so it, it, it on the one hand, I want to highlight the worst cases because it's important to know about them. On the other hand, I don't want adoptees to read my research and panic because statistically, they belong to this other group, right? So um, it's a little tricky to inject nuance into this conversation when feelings are so heightened about children, as you've just described, and for good reason. Thanks so much for that. And you mentioned something that leads into my my next question for you, which is really the, the adopted children themselves. You talk a lot about adopted children returning to Guatemala to seek out their birth parents or their roots. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this phenomenon and perhaps about some of the interesting cases you have found of this? Sure, I'm happy to do that. And I'll say, for me, they're not cases, they're people, right? These are people who've gotten in touch with me. Um, early on in the process, I was reading adoption files and realized that some of the expedientes, the uh, case files that I was reading, had contact information, you know, not just for adoptive families, but for birth families. And I just thought, this is not fair. This is not ethical, right? I'm, there's no way that I'm going to get in touch with a birth mother out of the blue years later. Who knows the circumstances under which she gave up her child for adoption? She may have been coerced. She may not. She may have done it in secret. She may have a new partner. I mean, you just don't know about the circumstances of people's lives. So I did not get in touch with birth mothers. I used pseudonyms to protect privacy. I did not use identifying details. I want to be clear about this stuff because you know, there's even a question about whether adoption files should really be open to researchers, which I think is a live question. Um, they should certainly be open to adoptees all around the world. That's my strong belief. So in any event, I wasn't going to get in touch with birth mothers. And I also wasn't going to call up adoptees and say, hey, I just read your case file. What do you think? You know, so all of the adoptees that I mentioned in the book have gotten in touch with me in one way or another, or I've met when they're giving a press conference in Guatemala or getting kind of involved in an organization. And so I want to say there's a certain amount of selection bias there. I really, among adoptees, there's a wide variety. There are many adoptees who don't want to know anything more about Guatemala and who have never gone to search for their birth parents. But those are not the adoptees that I'm in touch with, right? I am in touch with the adoptees who wanted to know the history of Guatemala or wanted to know the history of Guatemalan adoption. And so in the book, I discuss a couple of people who have um, gone looking for their birth parents in Guatemala 
and found some really disconcerting things, to put it mildly, right? To have found that their paperwork was falsified, have found perhaps that they were trafficked as a child, have found that um, they have some wrong names. So it's a brick wall and they don't know. Were they forcibly disappeared? Were they stolen? Was it a fine adoption, but with some fake names? They'll never know. It's really hard if you're an adoptee and your paperwork is falsified to learn the truth of what happened to you, to, to have you put up for adoption or to get in touch with your birth family. So what I realized when I was working on the book, and I write about this a little bit, is that I was doing my research as a historian, you know, with 40,000 cases in mind. But the adoptees were doing their own research with one case in mind, their case. But we were doing the same research. We were trying to figure out what happened and where, you know, what proportions of you know, kids were taken illegally or under what circumstances. So it's been really um, beyond helpful. It's been really enriching for me to talk to many of these adoptees over the year. And some I now consider friends, you know, these are people with whom I've had long conversations about um, things that are important to both of us, but for very different reasons. Thanks so much for that. And I'm glad you mentioned um, the um the idea of access to the sources themselves, uh, just kind of a Miami plug. Um, obviously, um, many of our institutions do hold um, archives related to Operation Pedro Pan, um, which brought um, children from Cuba to the U.S. So it's a really, it's a tough question um, ethically. So uh, I'm glad you did mention that. And uh, I will say, you know, I do think it. I, I clearly thought that I could, you know, use pseudonyms and just case numbers and, and that that would be adequate. But I also, in an earlier version of this project, thought about doing a, a history of both Guatemala and El Salvador, because El Salvador had a, a very marked phenomenon of disappeared children during the Civil War as well, some of whom ended up in international adoption in the U.S. Elizabeth Bernard has written a book about this um, just recently. Um but those files are closed. I went to the Probuscada offices in San Salvador and the director is lovely and doing really important work, reunifying children with their families when they can be found. And he said, you know, these, these files will be closed for at least 50 years. And I thought that that was great. So it's, you know, I understand on both sides. So um, obviously, you know, talking about sources, um, I think you do a really amazing job of interrogating your sources from um, interviews to press to case files. And you really, you know, question, you know, what are the silences here? Um, you know, what is being said contextually, um, and et cetera. Why did you do this? And what were the challenges associated with this approach? I think... Um the training that I had during my PhD program really emphasized power and silences in the archives. Um, I was trained by some mega Caribbeanists as well. You know, you know, Ada Ferrer, she taught us Michelle Trio really early on in the PhD program. And it was just something that was very present in my mind. Um, but even if you didn't have the kind of luxury of training with all these great NYU um, historians, you you get on a plane, you get off in Guatemala, and the kind of power dynamics around the archives are so obvious. You know, you'd have to really be quite a oblivious historian to miss it. The National Police Archive is 
the famous case of this, right? This was an archive that was found in 2005 accidentally. The Guatemalan state had pretended that it didn't exist, didn't want people reading about the records of Guatemalan police repression during the Civil War. It was opened up to international researchers. I did research in the police archives. Kirsten did, you know, many Guatemalan uh, researchers. Maria Aguilar has done great research there. She's a um, Guatemalan scholar who's currently a postdoc at Yale. And now the police records have all but been closed because it is not in the Guatemalan state's interest to have them open to researchers, either foreign or Guatemalan. And from one day to the next, access to archival materials in Guatemala can disappear. So, you know, <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is it doesn't take uh, like extremely sensitive historian to be very attuned to power dynamics when you're doing the research in Guatemala, because things are opening and closing all around you. Thanks so much for that. And I, you know, it's not unique to Guatemala, um, a lot of Latin American countries, the Cuban context, Cuba. which I know the best. Um, yeah, that is very real. So, so and it's, thank you. And it's so complex, right? Because, sorry, I don't mean to uh, cut you off, but if you are working in Cuba, right, at Cuba even more than in Guatemala, I'm sure, and you know that you're not getting access to certain things and you are getting access to others, that is going to be part of the story that you write. And ignoring that would be playing into some sort of existing power dynamic that is that really should be part of your analysis. So I think it's quite similar in that respect. Yeah, definitely. And I've, you know, in the Cuban case, the phenomenon of not seeing things in Cuba, but then going abroad to another archive and kind of, you know, seeing the documentation on that side. And so then you have that distorted picture still of like, you know, what's being said here, but we don't know what's being said inside. So I'm, I'm really glad that you um, that you mentioned that. So thank you. So, usually at the end, I like to give our authors a chance to tell us a little bit about what they are currently working on. So, if you have any projects you'd like to share, um, I'd love to hear about them. Sure. I never thought I would end up writing about migration issues. I just didn't. But if you live in Central America for any chunk of time, you start meeting a lot of deportees. Um, and so I became really interested in a question that I think has been has been written about by some wonderful scholars. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm the only one writing about this, um, but that has been sort of underplayed. And that question is what happens to deportees once they return to their country of origin? What happens to people and countries, you know, people, families, because families interest me as a historical and kind of human matter. But what happens when you have large scale deportations from the United States to Guatemala, because that's the place that I'm starting the research, that's the place that I know best, but also to Mexico, El Salvador, and the Dominican Republic. And I have this sort of big idea of the research that I would like to do. I am meeting some of the practical constraints as I start to do that research. So we'll see um, what I actually end up with, but I've started doing archival research and interviews with um, people who have been deported. Uh, and the idea is to cover um, 1954, the large-scale deportations of Mexicans during Operation Wetback. I hate even saying that name because obviously it's a racial slur, but that's the historical name of the operation. So 1954 to the present. Obviously, I cannot do all of that in one book, so I'm choosing certain moments that I think are really representative or that, frankly, where there's archival material available and trying to explore it um, that way. But as I mentioned uh, before we got recording, I have a young child, you know, life is complex. And so I am trying to figure out how to do this uh, 
in a slow way. Slow but steady is, I think, how I'm going to research this. Well, thank you so much for that. I think I speak for everybody when I say we're looking forward to seeing the fruits of those future projects. Um, this has been um, Rachel Nolan, who is the author of Until I Find You, Disappeared Children and Coercive Adoptions in Guatemala, which is available via Harvard University Press, released just this month. So uh, thank you so much, Rachel, uh, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.